0: Welcome to Commune, my name is Jeff Krasno. Before we dive into today's show, I wanna let you know about some of our programs on the Commune course platform. Commune features online courses from the world's most respected doctors, including Mark Hyman, Gabor Mate, Zach Bush, and Sarah Gottfried, across topics such as neuroplasticity, the microbiome, longevity, and hormone health. And we pair this information with actionable programs on yoga, meditation, nutrition and sleep. This combination of mechanism and practice makes Commune your one-stop destination for holistic well-being. And you can check out the entire treasure trove of over 130 courses for free for 14 days by signing up for a trial membership at onecommune.com/trial. So take agency over your own health by signing up for a free 14-day membership at onecommune.com slash trial. And of course, please support us by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. It makes a huge difference. Today on the show, we dive deep into the biology of belief with Bruce Lipton, Gabor Maté, and Alejandro Jünger, three preeminent doctors. We will discuss how our environment impacts our psychology and how our psychology subsequently affects our physiology. Specifically, we will explore how stress can cause physiological imbalances that beget disease, and we will hear about the protocols that one can consciously adopt to reverse disease and foster greater balance. Now, Western medicine has been characterized by the analysis of discrete individual systems. We have myriadologists, neurologists for the brain, gastroenterologists for the gut, pulmonologists for the lungs, cardiologists for the heart, and so on and so on. Now, this type of specialization has led to fantastic medical discoveries. At the same time, it has propelled a medical paradigm that often fails to see the interconnectedness of all the systems within the body and its relationship to its environment. Now, we have historically separated the mind from the body. In 1632, Descartes uttered his famous axiom, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, which conflated being with cognition. Now, while Descartes was Making a case for logic and reason, this notion divorced the mind from the soma. We too often feel as though we're some locus of consciousness locked up in an unintelligent bag of skin that we have, like we have a car. And like a car, something will likely go wrong with it. Now, over the past generation, we've begun to bridge the chasm between the mind and the body. We're beginning to understand that a human being is the sum total of of its biopsychorganism and its environment, and that you cannot define its function as separate from its ecosystem. Of course, we know this as a product of direct experience. A snake slithers across the floor and your heart and respiratory rate go through the roof, unless you're a herpetologist. Now, today's episode excavates how consciousness impacts our biology. We explore how our thoughts trigger hormones, chemical messengers that send signals to our body and how our environment can influence our gene expression. Specifically, we probe how stress can manifest in disease. Dr. Bruce Lipton is a pioneer in the emerging field of epigenetics. His classic book, The Biology of Belief, reshaped how we think about the interrelationship between thought and biochemistry. So without further delay. Here's Bruce Lipton. For the overwhelming majority of our human history, Homo sapiens existed as, as hunter-gatherers, and we evolved certain um, adaptive phenotypic traits that comported with, with foraging on the Serengeti. So 200,000 years ago, Bruce and I go out and roam the savannah, we're searching for food to bring back to our clan, and all of a sudden, a saber-toothed tiger or some odd-toed Horned ungulate springs forth out of the underbrush and it's furiously running towards Bruce and I. So as a place to start, can you describe the neurobiological cascade that is triggered by the perception of threat?
1: Before we even get to the human aspect of this, you have to recognize something called the biological imperative. What the hell is that? And that is, it's the drive to survive. Uh, And all organisms, this is the point why it becomes critical, is organisms as the bottom organism, bacteria. They are endowed with a biological imperative because if you try and kill a bacterium, it's not going to go, oh, okay, kill me. It's going to do everything it can to stay alive. So every living organism has a drive to stay alive. Well, in that case, it also then has an awareness of what could you know, compromise that alive. Uh, And then we build up an awareness of the scary things that could threaten us so that if they show up in our world, then we're going to immediately make a response to protect ourselves. Uh, Let me just before, because we might get into this later, there are two aspects to the biological imperative, survival of the individual yourself, let's say, uh, which is meaning why, you, you know, you seek air, water, food, you know, shelter and things like this, because this keeps us alive. The second one is also very critical because the second part of biological imperative is survival, not of the individual, but survival of the species, which means there's a drive to reproduce to keep the species alive. So uh, we can talk about the individual one first. Okay? OK, so it says when threats come into the environment. The biological imperative is the first to waken you to the threat, okay? Where is it? Well, that's what he said. Well, in the neural system, I go, we don't even know where it is. And it was there in bacteria before there was much of a neural system. So all of a sudden it goes, boy, we don't know where it is, but we know it exists. And and the relevance about that is that we all live by this biological imperative, which protects us, okay? And then I said, well, as you said, if a threat is looming then the biology switches its um, action community organization from growth into protection. Mm -hmm. And they're mutually exclusive. I'll just give you a reason why. If there's a stimulus that offers growth, you go to that stimulus and you go with your arms open to take it in. Assimilate. (laughs) It's growth. It It could be food. It could be love. I don't care. You open up. You go to the stimulus, open up, and take it in. That's growth. Protection, you go away from the threat,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and you close yourself down in protection. I say, guess what? You can't be in growth and protection at the same time. They're mutually exclusive behaviors. So when we get into protection, we shut down our openness and our growth in the world, and we start to look at how can I preserve myself in this threat, okay? Okay. And I say, well, how does the body make a response to this? I go, that the hypothalamus, which interprets the signals, interprets the fact that there's a threat. And when it does that, it sends a signal to the pituitary gland. The brain, hypothalamus says, oh, this is a threatening situation. And it sends a signal to the pituitary gland, which in high school was called the master gland because its secretions control 20, you know, 50 trillion cells that are in your body. And then in a state of threat, the pituitary sends a signal to the adrenal glands, which in school was called fight or flight. And all of a sudden it says, what happens, the adrenal stress hormones go to the body and they redirect the system. They take away uh, the energies that are involved with like growth, the energies uh, involved with the immune system. And I go, why? Look, if you're being chased by a saber-toothed tiger, bacterial infection is not your big deal at that moment, okay? Mm -hmm. And the immune system uses tremendous amount of energy because when people get sick, sometimes they don't even have energy to get out of bed, okay? Mm -hmm. So what are we talking about? When we get in stress, we want to allocate all the body's energy to escape. And escape uses arms and legs. So I go, your energy is where? In the blood. (laughs) So I go, so what happens when stress hormones come in, they redirect the flow of the blood and they take the blood and preferentially send it to the arms and legs. Cause that's where the energy are, is going to activate to get me out of there. And I go, well, preferentially, where was it preferentially before the stress? I go, it was in the gut, the viscera, all the organs mm-hmm. in here. I go, well, what were their functions? Growth maintenance of the body, cleaning up the system, preparing the energy, you know, taking care of the machine more or less, okay? But at the moment stress hormones are released in the body, the blood vessels in the gut respond to the stress hormones by squeezing shut. And when they squeeze shut, that means the blood is not really going into the gut, but it's now going preferentially into the arms and legs. And that's where we want to get that energy to run. So number one, stress hormones shut down the growth mechanisms of the body. Number two, they shut down the uh, immune system because that's a high energy system that is not relevant to an external threat. And then number three, which I always call the adding of insult to injury, is the blood vessels in the conscious brain are energizing conscious creativity, thinking, you know, an action like that. But the conscious brain is a very slow processor compared to the rest of the brain back here called the subconscious brain. And the subconscious brain is not only extremely fast beyond conscious brain, but it's a million times more powerful. So what happens is, remember I told you the blood vessels uh, in the gut constrict with stress hormones. That's where people get that butterflies in the stomach kind of feeling, queasy feeling, because what's going on The blood vessels are all squeezing shut. You can feel them. <laughs> and that's the queasiness. Yeah. But then the stress hormones go into the brain and they do the same thing in the conscious blood part of the brain. They squeeze the blood vessels shut. I say, so I'm not nourishing or energizing my consciousness, but when I squeeze it shut, the blood is then sent to the back of the brain where the subconscious has reflex behavior, reactions, high speed, very fast. We become less intelligent when stress hormones are there because we're not using thinking, we're using reflexes. Uh, and that's a completely different way of life. So I say, so what happens here? I say, well, growth, taking care of the body, threat, get the energy into the arms and legs as best you can and run like hell, get out of there. But at the compromise of what? Well, you're shutting down growth, you're shutting down the immune system, and you're shutting down intelligence. And I go, you don't need that to escape from the tiger. You just need fast arms, legs, and reflexes to make them go. I go, well, this is really great back, you know, two, three hundred thousand years ago, uh, where uh, the only real threat we had was the saber-toothed tiger. I go, so what? I say, well, if you're running from that saber-toothed tiger and you escape 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you're, you're gone, you're safe. Then you return back at growth again, to maintain the body. Today's world, the threats are so so many of them out there that we're not uh, uh, on uh, stress hormones for 10 minutes. We're on stress hormones all day. (laughs) And I go, what's the consequence? Well, I say all day you are inhibiting the mechanism from taking care of itself. And I say, today we have a health crisis. I go, yeah. A lot of people up until recent times said, oh, the genes, the genes are causing the disease and all this kind of stuff like that. Fact of science, less less than 1% of disease is connected to genetics. I'll say, well, then we have a health crisis. Where the heck is, where's all this coming from? And the answer is stress. Over 90% of illness is directly loaded to stress. Why? Because it shuts down the immune system it shuts down the growth. You're weak. And it was only for a short period years and years ago. But today that period of stress is extended. So it's like 24 seven. And I say, well, that is the major compromise of life on this planet, the fears. And I go, well, it's real interesting because the media loves to give us all the fears (laughs) and manipulates us. So when you watch the news, you're just dripping stress hormones through your body, compromising yourself. And so it's a point where we have to get out of this continuous chronic connection with fear, which is everywhere on this planet, just watch the news, surf the web, you know, look out your window and you can see this place is crazy and everybody's trying to do what? Well, you know, fear closes you down. Well, you can't survive. Why? Because you need to be engaged with the world and respond to everything. But if you're closing yourself down, you pulled yourself out. And that's where uh, disease starts to begin. Uh, and it's at every level, you know, it's like people are thinking, oh, well, cancer is caused by genes. I just love this as a fact of science, right? There's not one gene that causes cancer. There's no gene that causes cancer. They're called oncogenes, cancer genes. I say, well, because they used to say, well, that's the responsive thing that's responding uh your cancer right there. And I go, genes do not cause cancer. What the result is that consciousness will engage those genes if we're out of harmony if we're in a stress situation. So I say, well, well then the gene didn't turn on and do that. It was the consciousness that activated that gene. So for example, most women are very, of course, concerned about what is called the breast cancer gene. Oh, that's the gene that causes breast cancer. I say, no, it doesn't cause breast cancer. It's associated with breast cancer. Did it cause the cancer? No, no, it was activated by a problem. And that problem is uh, repressed anger or, you know, repressed emotions that weren't allowed to express themselves. Then you activate the gene. We've been blaming the gene. I go, no, the, the gene didn't even do this. It was us. And I go, that's the difference. I say, what's the difference? I say, if you believe the gene did it, then you're acknowledging you're a victim. My genes, I had nothing to do with it. I I didn't pick these damn genes. I can't change these genes. And these genes are turned on and off by themselves according to the story, which means I'm a victim of my biology. And I go, but genes didn't do this. (laughs) It was our response to the world that did this. And I go, wait a minute, our response to the world? I say, yeah, your consciousness. I go, why is that significant? Change your consciousness and the diseases can disappear or the, the consciousness can cause a disease, or a change of the consciousness can cause the d- disease to change. The difference is this, first story, victim of heredity. Gene's did this, I, I'm a powerless victim, give me drugs. <laughs> uh, the new story is, I, through my disharmony, are causing a cancer. Which then leads to a very simple understanding is, well, then what if I return to harmony? I go, well, then the cancer disappears. <laughs> as simple as that. Uh, and all of a sudden it says, first story, victim. Second story, the new science, epigenetics, where consciousness is controlling the genes, master. So we go from victim to master with a change in the science. Because now I'm going to give the power back to the people rather than saying, you're a victim of your genes. You had nothing to do with it. Now I going. no, no, you're the creator of this. And all of a sudden that changes how we look at the world after how many years of being programmed to be victims. And then we find out, no, my God, we're the creators. Well, for the creators, then where the hell the issue is? And I go, well, that's the programming we have to deal with. Yeah,
0: yeah. God, so interesting. Okay, so many threads to pull on there. What was once an adaptive advantage, essentially, this HPA axis response to threat has become maladaptive because of the systems and structures that we have reified in our society. So, for example, fast forward to the Serengeti of Facebook, for example, um, which I often call the largest non-consensual psychological experiment in history. Um, <laughs> it
1: is, yes, yeah, sorry, it's true. <laughs> and,
0: and we're spending, especially, uh, I have three daughters, particularly teenagers are spending an inordinate amount of time, well, not on Facebook, but <laughs> on all of these platforms. And these algorithms uh, are designed for the hind brain, basically to leverage negativity bias through fear and outrage in order to maximize views and watch time, et cetera. And the result is this chronic secretion of neuromodulators and hormones um, like cortisol and and epinephrine, et cetera, when we become um, very uh, entrenched in this sympathetic overload, which I think what you're saying is having really detrimental impacts on, on human physiology. So I'd love to kind of dig into that mechanism a little bit how do, let's say, you know, we are in this constant state of low grade fight or flight and we're having a hormonal response that is concomitant with, with the sympathetic response. How do our cells at the cellular level, how do we know? How, why are they acting differently? How are genes turning on and off in response to serum hormonal levels?
1: Well, the first thing we have to understand is this. The the entire belief that genes turn on and off by themselves is a totally false statement. Because by acknowledging that, then you're saying, well, I have no control over it. The genes did it, okay? But we don't know. Genes are blueprints. They're there to design what are called the proteins of the body, and 100,000 different proteins. The, the proteins are like Lego pieces that you can assemble them the hundred thousand different proteins and different combinations make a muscle cell with one combination of proteins, a nerve cell with a different combination already. So I say, yeah, but these are the proteins that create us. And these are the proteins where life comes from. I said, but what about the DNA? I said, well, proteins wear out that they're, they're called labile, not stable. labile, meaning that, uh, they fall apart. <laughs> you put a piece of meat on a plate and we come back next week, that meat is not going to be the same as it was when we put it out there. It's going to start to break down, fall apart. So proteins that naturally keep falling apart, but then you have to replace them. I say, yeah, but proteins are complex molecules with a complex structure. And I go, oh, I said, well, then how do I replace these complex structures? I say, there are blueprints, a blueprint to make this protein or that protein, 100,000 proteins. I say, there are blueprints. I say, what do you call a blueprint? I got a gene. A gene is a blueprint. I go, oh, is a blueprint. And then we told people, well, they were self-emergent, which means, oh, they turn themselves on, they turn themselves off. I say, no, look, let's be honest about a blueprint. We go into an architect's office. She's working on a blueprint. You lean over her shoulder and you ask her, hey, is your blueprint on or off? And she'd look at you like, what the hell are you talking about? There's a blueprint. There's no on and off. And I go, precisely. The difference is you can read a blueprint or not read a blueprint, but the blueprint doesn't read itself. And all of a sudden I said, then for years we were saying the blueprint was turning on and off by itself, controlling you. And now we know, no, it's the consciousness that engages the blueprint. I say, how does it do it? And I say, through chemistry. Different chemicals cause different responses in genes. Matter of fact, that's what I did in 1967, which is now like 40 or 50. It's a long time ago. <laughs> and uh, what did I do? I had genetically identical cells, cloning cells, and I had three plates with genetically identical cells in them, but I fed them different culture medium. I said, what's culture medium? Well, that's the growth environment. I go, yeah, but what is culture medium? I say, laboratory version of blood. So if I'm going to grow human cells, I say, What is human blood made out of. And then I go into the lab and with a recipe, I make culture medium, match human blood. Okay. And so I go, so what? And I say, well, because I'm creating the mixture, I can change some of the composition. So I created three different combinations of chemistry called culture medium, slightly different. And I had three plates, genetically identical cells in all the plates. And what I did is I fed one plate with culture medium version one, another plate with culture medium version two, and a third with culture medium three. And I said, well, what was the result? they were all genetically identical. I said, well, in one environment, culture one, the cells form muscle. In environment two, the cells form bone. In environment three, the cells form fat cells. And I go, well, wait a minute. I'm teaching a genes control life. And here we have an experiment that reveals all these cells are genetically identical then what was the cause of why one becomes bone and one becomes muscle? And the answer was, it wasn't the cells. It was the environment, the culture medium. And I go, wow, that's really neat. That's the foundation of what we call epigenetics. The genes didn't control this. They were controlled by the environment that the cells were in. Okay. So I go, so what's the significance for this? I go, well, a human Uh, when we see ourselves in a mirror, single entity. And I go, well, that's an illusion because we're made out of 50 trillion cells. The cells are the living entity. Bruce, by definition, is a community of 50 trillion sentient cells. So I go, oh, so the cells in our body, uh, our body is like a skin covered Petri dish. It's got 50 trillion cells inside. I go, yeah, but it also has the original culture medium. I said, what was that? Blood. And I go, then what? I say, it doesn't make a difference if a cell is in a plastic dish or the skin-covered dish. It's still controlled by the environment culture medium. In the plastic dish, that's the one I put in there. In your skin-covered dish, your blood is your culture medium. So bottom line is this. It's the chemistry of the blood, the environment, that activates expression of the gene. And I go, ah, now comes the most. Well, what? Where's that chemistry come from? I go, the brain is the chemist that puts the chemicals in the blood. But then comes the ultimate one that Jeff has been waiting for me to say, and that is simply this. So what chemicals should the brain put in the blood? And the answer is, whatever thought you have, the brain will translate that into complementary chemistry. There's a chemistry for love, which is a different chemistry than fear, which is a different chemistry than anger. And I go, oh, and so basically it says this, If I hold a picture of love in my consciousness, my brain translates that into love chemistry, dopamine for pleasure, oxytocin, bonding, vasopressin makes you more attractive, keep your partner, and growth hormone, which does what it says. So if I have a picture of love in my head, I'm a healthy person. Why? Those chemicals when in my blood are going to enhance my vitality. That's why people fall in love. They glow. That glow of health is not an accident. It's a result of the chemistry. But I say, but if I have a picture of fear in my head, I don't release love chemistry, as you mentioned, Uh, Jeff, just a moment ago, we start to release things like stress hormones into the blood or factors that affect the immune system to protect us and shut us down. I go, wait, the chemistry of love is totally different than the chemistry of fear. Mm -hmm. But to the cells, they respond to the chemistry. So there's a behavior that's associated with love, vitality, health, and that's why love is so cool. But there's a different behavior associated with fear because it's a shutdown of the mechanism of protection, wall yourself off, save yourself, and stuff like that. And I'm going, so here's bottom line. We used to say genes control us. We're victims. We didn't pick them, can't change them. They turn on and off by themselves. The new science, epigenetics, and epi means above. So epigenetics is above the genes. That's where the control comes from. <gasps> consciousness. You change your consciousness, and you change the chemistry of your blood, which then in turn changes the uh, genetic activity.
0: It's quite amazing when you think about it that non-material experiences and thoughts can directly lead to the production of something material. Something scary in the external world can be decoded by the brain, assigned a valence and salience by the mind, and subsequently trigger signals that tell the body to generate cortisol, for example, a steroid hormone produced from cholesterol in the adrenal glands. Uh, this chemical regulates so many different functions around the body. It's astounding. Now, chronic stress can lead to hormonal imbalances, including both the overproduction and the underproduction of cortisol. Overproduction can undermine the immune system, disrupt the balance of gut flora, and spike glucose levels. Underproduction can lead to brain fog, fatigue, and thyroid issues. It's all connected. Of course, we're striving for balance, the Goldilocks zone, homeostasis. Balance begets ease imbalance leads to dis-ease. As Gabor Mate explains, we tend to misunderstand disease. Typically, we think of disease as some sort of physiological malfunction. We slap a diagnosis on a cluster of systems, and then this label guides the treatment, usually the prescription of a drug that neuters the symptoms. However, disease is a progressive process that is generally not abnormal. It's a normal and expected response of your body to external stimuli. In his extraordinary book, The Myth of Normal, Gabor directly connects trauma-inducing events with pathology in the body. But in helping us understand disease as process, he also gives us agency.
3: Here's Gabor Mate. At some point, something became very clear to me that, as a physician, I had this idea of disease that was very static and very undynamic, and it shows up in how we use language. So we say, I have multiple sclerosis, or I have ADHD, or I have cancer. Well, that language implies something. It implies that there's this thing called ADHD. There's this thing called multiple sclerosis. There's this thing called cancer, which has got a nature of its own and is independent of the person who has it. So, I have this book, or I have this cup. It's a thing. I can pick it up, I can put it down, I can use it, I can not use it, I can give it away, keep it. When somebody's diagnosed with, say, multiple sclerosis, Or any illness they're told by the physicians here's your disease this is this thing it's got this is what it does this is what the prognosis is this is what its course is gonna look like that's assuming that the disease has got a life of its own and it's a thing apart from the person in whom the disease show up now in my conversation with V what occurred to both of us is that it's not the nature of illness it's actually a process that process unfolds in a particular individual. Illness doesn't interrupt your life, it manifests your life. And there's all kinds of scientific evidence to show how illness is actually, is not something that shows up all of a sudden. It's a long-term process, very much connected to what happened to you, even prenatally and birth and childhood. And that the identifiable symptoms, by the time the diagnosis arrives, are only the more explicit manifestations of a long-term process. Mm. That really has to do with what's happened to you in your life and what dynamics have animated, how you you relate to yourself and, and to your life. It's not a theoretical distinction, it's a practical one. Because the disease is a process that manifests your life. It also means that if you gain agency over your life, you can affect the process. Yes. And there are so many documented examples, including people that I've talked to in the book, who they changed the process of their life. Their disease naturally changes, because the disease is not a thing with a life of its own. And. We all know of these people who've been given terminal diagnosis and 30 years later they're still alive. Well, those are, I'm not saying those examples are common, but the very fact that they exist tells us that this idea of disease is a thing is a, is a mm, fantasy. Mm. You take somebody like the physicist Stephen Hawking, who was diagnosed with ALS, this thing called ALS, and he was told you've got two years to live at age 20. And 55 years later or so, he died as the world's most well-known physicist, having made incredible contributions to our understanding of the universe. So, clearly there's a process going on there that medical practice doesn't recognize. I should also say here that I have to make a distinction between medical practice and medical science, because science has shown the process and how it works. Medical practice doesn't recognize it. The strange dichotomy.
0: Yeah, it's almost taken a hundred years now since quantum mechanics and yeah. particle physics and all yeah. of this science that essentially pointed to the notion that the world is not fixed. Right. That it is not a thing yeah. that is unchangeable. That's right. But it is dancing and in vibratory interrelationship with itself and, of course, this is Um, speaks to our mutual interest in in Buddhism and notions of dependent origination and life as an interconnected web or spontaneously emergent as in the Taoist tradition. Um, But here we are now a hundred years later from some of the greatest discoveries of the early 20th century, just now on the cusp of putting our thumb on um, on all of these fields of emerging study, like epigenetics and neuroplasticity and the microbiome, yeah. that constantly yeah. show us yeah. that life is process, yeah. that we are, that every interaction between an organism and its environment can be adaptive or maladaptive. That's right. And yes, we've heard of some of the more um, like sensational recoveries, like our friend Anita Morjani, who had a near-death experience and then all of a sudden went into remission from a very stage four, what we dub it, cancer. Um, But this doesn't have to be that extreme, that anyone along any part of their journey can recognize that they're in process and adopt certain kinds of protocols and behaviors and self work that can be adaptive to that process.
3: Well Anita's Anita's book, the title is very telling, isn't it? Dying to be me. Yeah. And literally what she says is that she had to nearly die to become truly herself. Because she discovered as a result of this direct near death experience, she had sort of this flash of illumination, that she had never been herself all her life because in order to fit in with her family and the cultural expectations, uh, she had to give up her sense of herself. So she literally had to die almost to become herself. Now that's my general observation of chronic illness is that virtually, not, not everybody but virtually everybody with chronic illness. I say not, not everybody because there are some diseases that are significantly or almost 100% genetically determined. One that runs in my family is my muscular dystrophy. If you have it you'll have the disease yeah. regardless of what kind of personality you have.
0: Sickle cell.
3: Yeah but both those are rare. Yeah. Very rare in a population. So in most chronic illness uh, in my work as a family physician and palliative care physician and later on in addiction medicine um, I did notice that the people prone to chronic illness are people that at some point in life for no fault of their own had to disconnect from themselves as the impact of traumatic influences that and then scar the, tissue built and up. The scar, yeah, and, and then 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 the disease comes along and very often acts as a wake-up call and What people often discover is the path back to themselves under the you might say, compulsion of the illness. And so in that sense, no, I don't recommend that way of learning. And, and one of the reasons I write the book is so that we can learn these lessons before our body forces us into the kind of illumination that Anita had had to experience. But much short of those dramatic and, 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 and life-threatening uh, conditions, people can pay attention to their bodies. And, and and learn what the bodies are trying to tell them and draw the right conclusions. And it's always about mm, you're not being yourself here. Mm -hmm. You know, it sounds simplistic, but um, I've got decades of experience and observation behind it, not to mention multiple studies that that, that tend in the same direction. And uh, again, what's remarkable is the degree to which medical practice almost militantly ignores all that evidence. One of the most compelling
0: aspects of Gabor's work is his emphasis on the idea that disease is process, not a thing. And the dynamic interplay between one's emotional experiences and one's health outcomes. We exist on a spectrum between ease and disease. And the good news is that there are many ways to tilt the scale toward ease, despite our toxic culture working against us. And in this section, we'll talk about how we cultivate balance and heal within a toxic culture what are the protocols and the mindsets that can unwind trauma and by extension heal our body minds if illness and disease exist on a spectrum
3: yeah. what is healing to look at word origins is comes from an anglo-saxon or a german anglo-saxon word for wholeness then healing is becoming whole again which means I shouldn't say becoming whole again, more accurately, probably recognizing our wholeness. Recovery means to find again. Mm. You ask anybody who's recovered, what did you find? They'll say, I found myself. Which means that that whole self was never lost. It just got obscured and uh, lost to our awareness. So wholeness and healing is the recovery of the awareness of our wholeness. And in that sense, wholeness doesn't always mean cure. Right. So the more you realize that you're okay, the more you realize that what happened then doesn't have to define your present and your future.
0: If you were to be able to give a message to people, to empower them, to give them agency, to every day wake up and move towards
3: healing, And away from disease, what would that message look like? Just to change the language a bit, I cannot give anybody agency (laughs) by definition. True. Okay. I can help them wake up to the potential of agency within themselves. And what I would say to people is that every instance of perceived helplessness and lack of agency on your part, um, every moment of being carried away by emotions as if a flood had just carried you away. Every instance when something is a bit off and you notice that it is, now rather than dismissing it or judging yourself for it, you got curious about it. Huh, why did I react that way? Not why did I react that way, which is a judgment, mm. but hmm, I wonder why I did react that way. I wonder. Why did I feel helpless? I'm actually an adult human being. I'm not an infant anymore. So this sense of helplessness that I have. When I have an opinion that I'm afraid to express because I don't, I'm afraid people won't like me. Even when a medical doctor an expert tells me something that doesn't feel right to me or that I have some questions about, but I don't utter my questions or I don't state my objection, what is holding me back? That's the pathway towards agency. So to me, the pathway towards agency lies through this compassionate curiosity about one's responses and reactions to the world and one's, the, one's emotions. Just be curious about everything. Mm-hmm. And that promotes agency in two ways. Because first of all, the answers will begin to emerge. But secondly, you'll begin to notice who's the one asking the questions. <laughs> Well, that's to you that you don't even know existed. Mm. So to me, the path to agency lies through curiosity.
0: Everyone experiences some level of trauma. This can be acute and profound trauma resulting from neglect, abuse, racism, or a horrible accident. It can also be little t trauma, like the constant drip of a culture that tells us that we're not good enough, not pretty enough, not rich enough. We're all living on a spectrum between wholeness and illness, and everyone responds differently to trauma, and that can determine our direction on that spectrum. Are we healing or are we ailing? Now, Gabor reminds us that we do have some degree of agency. We can't change the underlying event, but we can change our emotional relationship to the event. We can reframe the tyranny of the past through self-inquiry and cultivating compassionate curiosity towards our thoughts, emotions, reactions, and beliefs. We can develop praxis that can help us witness the past with greater equipoise and non-attachment. Of course, Freedom from our trauma is hard rot, given the nature of culture. And if emotional toxicity weren't enough, we're also navigating a world of chemical toxins in the air, in the water, and in so many commercial products. I talked to the brilliant functional medicine doctor Alejandro Junger about his experience learning to release negative thoughts through meditation and how that led him to develop the CLEAN program which is designed to help us detox and heal from many external toxic exposures.
2: I was, uh, you know, avidly looking for an explanation to the fact that, that, that I wasn't really choosing my thoughts. They were just popping in my head. And, and, you know, if I had a choice, I wouldn't be thinking them. So then who was thinking them? who was choosing these things to appear in my head which were so devastating to me you know it played with my emotions in such a negative way so and and I couldn't find an explanation in the in the DSM um, uh, catalog you know of, 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 of psychiatric diseases right so but every now and then I used to find a quote that somehow gave me some hope of of understanding and I would go and follow the referrals from where that quote came from. And slowly, slowly I started moving, following these, these, um, these, these quotes and, and, and where they came from. I started moving from the psychiatric section to the psychology section, then to the self-help section. And then I ended up in the Eastern religions and, and philosophy section, where one day a book fell in my hands opened up to a section that was uh, titled Meditation. And and when I looked in this particular book, the the explanation or the definition was the practice by which you are able to calm down the repetitive negative stream of thoughts, the repetitive negative and automatic stream of thoughts, and maybe even able to stop it and that's when I said, oh my God, how come, first of all, this is not a concept in psychiatry. And second, this is exactly what I'm looking for. I want to silence this this broken radio in my head that is driving me. I thought I was going crazy. I thought that I was listening to voices. I didn't know that 99% of the population of the world is having the same experience. Some more negative, some more positive, but even positive continuous thinking is not Freedom of thought. It's not presence. It's just a stream of thoughts. The lucky ones or the luckier ones have positive thinking. But that's just the other side of the coin. You know, it's automatic and it's exhausting and it's never stopping and it's, it doesn't let you sleep, whether it's positive or negative. It just happened that mine were really negative. So um, I started looking for a way to learn how to meditate. And eventually I ended up in an ashram, upstate New York, in the, in the Catskills, where I had an encounter face to face with the guru in, the, in this ashram, Guru Mai. And in this encounter, which now I understand was very special because it was one-on-one and that doesn't happen too often, she's always followed by hundreds of people. She basically ended up smacking me on my chest. and. Putting me in a state, which I understand now as a synopsis or a preview of enlightenment. I was my body completely dissolved. I was not this. I was everywhere. I was everything. I merged. You know, i i read I, I read about it now, and it's it's what what um. Eastern philosophers and Eastern religion teachers called cosmic consciousness. Well, that, when they described that, was very similar to the experience that I had when she smacked my chest. And when I came back, um, I, I understood that that's the possibility that we come to Earth with, to be in that state continuously. And then, and then there are ways to get there right and and from that day on my life took a different course and i stopped wanting to be a famous cardiologist that invented some new cardiac catheterization and balloon technique which is what i what i was what I had in mind at that time you know to invent some new balloon angioplasty technique and 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 i focused on becoming Thought free and fully present, so I I ended up my cardiology fellowship, graduated, took off and went to live in an ashram in India, in her ashram in India, where I was given the position of medical director of the clinic there, that had different functions.
0: One part of the, your book and your work that, um, honestly, some of my listeners might find somewhat overwhelming. Um, but I promise there's good news uh, on the other side is the uh, cornucopia of sources of toxicity. Now, you, you know, you found meditation um, to address um, toxic thoughts. For example, like uh, the second verse of the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, uh, it says, uh, what is it is yoga chitta vritti naroda yoga is the progressive stilling of the fluctuations of the mind right um, but i wonder if you could enumerate just so people can understand the vast array of sources of toxicity
2: um, the air the air we breathe, the water we drink and shower with the medications we consume of which only 10% are the active ingredients and then there's all these other chemicals put there for coloring for for consistency for for to, to last longer the the cosmetics that we apply on our skin, the toiletries that we use to clean ourselves the 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 clothing that we that we wear, the detergents with which we wash those clothes, the furnitures in our home, the paints that we paint our wall with, the plastics that we cover our cars with, that new smell that you get of a, of a new car. This is all off-gassing of plastics. The mattresses we sleep on, in which we spend 30 or, or, or more percent of our lives laying down on and breathing the off-gassing of the fire retardants that are are constantly emanating into your lungs. But mostly the food-like products that we eat as foods are loaded with chemicals that alone or in combination cause some kind of disruption in your metabolism, in your physiology. They either block hormones, they either activate receptors or block receptors they damage the intestinal flora they they erode the intestinal wall they excite the, the the nervous system both in your intestines and in your and in your skull and they cause all kinds of havoc that eventually end up forming or manifesting as a diagnosable disease mm.
0: Yeah, it's just um, somewhat overwhelming when I listen to you uh, bullet point all of the sources of toxicity because, um, you know, we can do our very, very best to align with nature, to eat organic food, to exercise and to uh, adopt various different protocols, Um to uh, upregulate our immune system, for example, but but these toxins are just ubiquitous, um,
2: inescapable in, modern- in the modern world today. Yeah, inescapable. Now, now, having said that, what you just mentioned is probably the most important thing that we can do. When you start eating real foods and not edible stuff, when you start eating organic real food, fruits, vegetables, and, and if you eat animals, then animals that were you know, caught from the wild, not raised in farms and, and injected with all kinds of stuff. That is probably the most important aspect of reversing this, this uh, plane crash. That, that, that we are in, right? This falling yeah. plane heading to, heading to a mountain to explode, right? That is the most important aspect of it. So I consider that kind of like the parachute because when you start with that, the effects are very powerful, very noticeable, very effective, and and they lead to paying attention to all the other sources of toxicity.
0: I hope this episode has articulated the intricate relationship between mind and body and the power of our thoughts and beliefs to influence our physiology. We are not separate atomized beings. Being human is the total of our biopsycho conscious or unconscious, in relationship with our environment. We're the entire thing. While we cannot control our genetics, We don't choose our parents, though some of us wish we could, and we certainly cannot control all aspects of our environment, but we do have tremendous agency, our physiology and psychology are not fixed. We can adopt protocols to better manage our emotional response to external stimuli as Viktor Frankl famously wrote between stimulus and response. There is a space in that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. If you enjoy the show, please hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Now, if you're a regular listener, you likely have a sense for how much effort our team puts into this show's creation. And we really do our best to keep ads to a minimum. This is not one of those shows where the first 15 minutes are ads. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way to do so is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 130 courses featuring the world's top authors, doctors, and thought leaders. And you can check it out for free for 14 days at onecommune.com trial. That's O-N-E commune.com trial. Of course, Feel free to reach out to me directly anytime with questions, suggestions, or criticism, preferably of the constructive variety, at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, but not leastly, I would like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jake Lyle, Megan Stone, Alayda Maliga, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson okay that's all from the commune for today my name is jeff krasnow and i am here